0: Rev it up and welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 1,419. Today on Cars Yeah, I'm celebrating the second annual Cigar City Concord Elegance that takes place November 9th and 10th at Tampa Bay Downs Horse Racing Track. If you want to learn more or attend this event, go to CigarCityConcord.com. The best
1: tagline that a few of my customers have given the business...
0: This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Hey, Cars Yeah, I'm a huge fan of Covercraft. I've protected my vehicles with their products for decades. My favorite collector car magazine is Keith Martin's Sports Car Market. I've been a subscriber for decades. Sports Car Market is the Wall Street Journal for the enthusiast and the collector. It's your monthly must-read whether you dream of owning a collector car, have two cars, or 200. Sports Car Market has been around for 31 years, and it's filled with valuable articles, intelligent write-ups, and the latest auction sales. Go to sportscarmarket.com and subscribe today. Plus, you'll get the exclusive SEM guide to restoration shops included for free. At checkout, use the code CARSYA and receive a 50% discount on your digital subscription. It's an exclusive offer from me here at Cars Yeah. I'm Mark Green, and I love Sports Car Market Magazine. Hello, automotive enthusiasts. I'm revved up and so excited to introduce today's very special guest calling in from St. Petersburg, Florida. Sergio Fernandez. Hey, Sergio, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride?
1: I'm excited about this one.
0: I'm ready. All right, cool. Sergio Fernandez is the chief judge at the Cigar City Concord Elegance. He's the owner of VetWork Incorporated, the record-setting shop responsible for producing the highest-selling 1967 L88 Corvette coupe to date that sold at the 2014 Barrett-Jackson Auction in Scottsdale, Arizona for $3.85 million dollars. Wow, that's a lot of dollars. Sergio is one of the founding fathers of the Metro Long Island chapter of the National Corvette Restorers Society, the NCRS, and he is the master level judge for that group. He owns two factory documented 1966 Copo Corvettes, both Duntoff certified award winners and MCACN Gold Spinner award winners as well. So Sergio, I've told our listeners just a little tiny bit about you. We're going to jump into the questions, but before we do, could you take a brief moment to share a little bit more about your business and a very obvious passion that you have for automobiles? Well, to
1: start at the beginning, um, I used to own a landmark preservation company in the 80s. And we, used to, we were located in New York City, and we used to do a lot of work there on all of the historical society buildings. And in 1998, I was approached by a company called Remco that wanted to purchase us because they were going public and they bought out all of our Northern Queens area condo contracts that we had, which covered about 500 units. And we had a project that was ongoing about to start with Governor's Island. And we ended up selling out and deferring payments over a 10 year period to help out with taxes. And the interesting part is, is that from dealing with the public and dealing with the bureaucracy of the New York City Historical Society and New York State Historical Society, we ended up enjoying coming home to a two-car garage in a Victorian home that was a landmark home that I restored and just working on my vet. And... I used to lock myself in a garage, turn on the wood-burning stove, and get to work on my cars uh, very enthusiastically. And as I got involved in the late 80s with the NCRS and started to learn more about the cars, I ended up becoming one of the founding fathers when the Metro Long Island chapter was first established around 1991. The word got out that I was doing cars, and then it became two cars at the house, and then four cars at the house. And then we had a bunch of C2 mid years lined up in the 80 foot driveway of the house. And I found that when I got bought out after making the deal with the business, it kind of put me in a semi retired state. So I was young, and I said, you know what? I need to find a bigger place because I'm having a lot of fun and I'm enjoying what I'm doing, but I need a bigger location just to be able to be more flexible. Well, ultimately, I had a buddy of mine who was opening up a large location a few blocks from me to establish a automotive repair center. So within his shop, I built my shop, which was probably about 1,500 square feet. And I thought, "Wow, what a pleasure having all this room comparatively to the old two-car garage and crawling on my back and now I had a lift, and well, before you knew it, the year was over, and I needed spandex walls i <laughs> <laughs> I just couldn't fit the cars in there, and they were yeah. coming out of the woodwork in the neighborhood, nice. and all the old guys that I used to see that I knew. When I was a kid, I grew up racing a Connecting Highway in Astoria, New York, on, on the Brooklyn Queens Expressway. And it's a notorious street racing location. Um, in fact, there's a uh, website up for Connecting Highway. I started going there and then, believe it or not, I was a kid. I think I started seeing my first races there. I was probably eight years old. So it was a defining moment at that point that I loved cars. Then while I was going to high school in downtown New York City in the Bowery, I used to get out of high school, and then I started to go to Anti Automotive School in Brooklyn. So I used to catch the train to West 4th Street and change there and head over to Brooklyn and go to school there weeknights until 10 o'clock, then come home and do homework. So I managed to graduate with good grades, and I ended up also graduating from Delahanty Automotive School, and then proceeding on to going into the building field after that. So I used it basically as a hobby, and the hobby that went from a sport turned into a business. And from there, we ended up in 2002 buying a a building that was nearby that became available, and um, ended up using that for storage from the other shop because I had no room there. And then I ended up redoing that building, and in 2012 moved into that location, which was I was going from 1,500 square feet to 3,000. And now ultimately, after living under the duress of New York City regulations and getting vanquished by them uh, with all types of penalties and fines and nonsense, I decided it's time to leave the bureaucracy, and I came down to St. Pete Beach, Florida. And then I ended up in in 2013, I bought a house down here. And then in 2015, I bought a shop that's now 6,000 square feet. And I've got a 3,000 square foot showroom and a 3,000 square foot shop. And I'm almost all out of New York now. I'm still kind of in transition, but I'm bringing cars down from there and trying to keep everything going here. And I've got a lot of interesting cars still in the woodwork.
0: Yeah, you know, it's a great story because, it's akin to a lot of things. And I kind of chuckle at this. I say, you mean there's bureaucracy in New York City? Really? I had no idea. Um, but you know what? I have a saying. Capital goes where capital grows. And this is a great story about, and I don't want to get political here because, oh, it just raises so many cackles on uh, for me. But when cities start to become or states too much for business, they leave. I mean, I did it. 25 years ago, left California, never thought I'd leave California, came up here to the Northwest, and then business I was running there, half of our business, we moved to the Midwest because things got too bureaucratic here to try to build a building and manufacture goods, so I don't understand why states do this, but today we're not going to talk about that, we're going to talk about Sergio, we're going to talk about Cigar City Concord, but it's a wonderful story, and it's a telling story, and you wish these bureaucrats would listen, but they're not interested. Well, listen, as we continue on your journey, let's start with a success quote or a mantra. This is some kind of saying that's been instrumental in forming your life and your success. It's a nice way to get the inspirational tires turning here on cars. Yeah. In your case, vets. So, Sergio, take the wheel.
1: I would probably say the best tagline that a few of my customers have given the business has been Vetworks is where Corvette is spoken here. Vetworks is where. Perfection isn't good enough. And Vetworks is where we have taken the hobbyists and have welcomed them and have been instrumental in providing them the necessary knowledge for them to correctly do the hands on work that they want to, because this business is dead without the hobbyists. And unfortunately, a lot of the different major national associations that are related with cars or Corvettes and and, and special especially they have um, they've kind of shunned and ruined it for the hobbyist and a lot of that also comes from the you know the advent of uh, where a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing unfortunately you need judges for these events and a lot of the judges obtain their levels because of the attendance that they do at judged events and schools that they're supposed to be learning on. But your best restorer and your best guy to get advice from is not those judges. It's always going to be the person who is hands-on dismantling cars and understood the production line and how it actually worked. Chevrolet in general is a company that wanted to produce items to sell. Within those guidelines, they had very wide parameters when it came to what was acceptable to be a completed car and finished to be able to be shipped to the dealer. Hence, all of the dealers and most of your American manufacturers all had a PD, a pre-delivery inspection, a PDI process, where they had to go through... Actually, looking at the cars that came off, were anything del- was anything delivered in damage? Was anything missing? Was there a problem with the trim? Was there a problem with electrical items in the car that didn't work? And the reason why they had that there, because at the factory, it was, well, whatever we didn't catch here, they'll catch there, keeping your fingers crossed. I've seen a lot of very interesting original cars that and stories that I have had personally told to me by gentlemen that worked on the St. Louis assembly plant. They had hired one of the funniest ones I heard about, a colorblind painter that was put in the booth. (laughs) Seriously? Yeah, yeah. And it's a really interesting story because he was working on the 1966 production line in St. Louis painting. And he was a younger gentleman, but he was colorblind. And unfortunately, he didn't know it and the car came out it called for a silver finish on the vehicle and when the vehicle came out one half of it was silver and the other
0: half of it was Mossport sport green oh my so, gosh
1: <laughs> and you know it, they it, call it, that it, two
0: tone <laughs> Sergio two tone really, no come no, on that
1: was that was a that was definitely an R&D
0: project for sure yeah.
1: and yeah. research and develop what the problem was but that's Honestly, there is, there's a lot and people forget and a lot of the judges forget that types of rivets that were used, time periods of the assembly process were very important. In the beginning part of the years, most of these cars are assembled and they're assembled with a good inventory of parts that are available. They also used more than one vendor for hardware and fasteners. And it's not unusual to see different markings on head bolts and so on. And judges think that all the head bolts have to match. All the head markings, excuse me, have to match. That's not, that's not true. You know, and as the process went on and you got later in production, vehicles that had to be pulled back, that had a deficiency that failed on the line, they were banked in the basements of St. Louis. From there, those items were brought up, and it was time to finish what you you know to to work with what you had and assemble it and get it to what their final assembly inspection was suitable in order for them to get them out Bottom line is they're not going to leave parts that were that were usable to be able to get a car out and I've seen a lot of late model late model late production cars in the year that had early production items on it, and the judges crucified these cars on national levels and regional levels, and not understanding that this was probably a banked car that was built in the last week of production, and this is probably a car that had a problem early in production, and the car was warehoused. So there's a lot of interesting things. I own a 66. 427 450 horse car that is vin number 941 and it was built in the first week of production at st louis it's a Dunthorpe winning car it's been through all of its paces and the vehicle because of early production is incredible as to how many parts that are on that car That actually have sixty-five identifiable numbers or assembly procedures. The firewall on the car, for example, has rivets for J clips that, and they're mounted on the firewall that would have been used on a sixty-five car to route the positive terminal all the way along the firewall because it was on the opposing firewall on the opposing side in Mm -hmm. sixty-five. But in '66, wow. the battery was moved over. So, but they left it there. So, obviously, that was a firewall from a '65 car that was used to build this car in production. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. You so you, you know, you see a lot of stuff throughout the years. I've made a lot of friends. Uh, sort of changing the gears here. I've made a lot of friends in the hobby. A lot of them very long term. A lot of my clients have become dear friends and very close over the years. And some of the things that I've been or the doors that have been opened for me through there, was which was dear to my heart because as a kid, I remember visiting the New York City World's Fair in 1964 and 1965. And I have some very fond memories from that. When I received a call from the Queensborough president, regarding that they were going to be doing a 50th anniversary at the World's Fair and they wanted me to provide period cars. Well, I started reaching out to all the networks that I had and we managed to bring down the George Barris Batmobile to the event. And we had about 500,000 people that came through the venue for the 50th anniversary. It was a giant mob. It was funny because everybody wanted to touch the cars we had the James Bond 64 Aston Martin that was used in Goldfinger there with all the accessories on it uh the monkeys mobile was there as well and we brought out uh one of the cars that we were fortunate enough to do was a 1964 Corvette that was silver red with every option available and the vehicle was shown at the Futurama uh exhibition in nineteen sixty four. Just when the Mustang was debuting. Yeah, so we brought back a lot of stuff, but what was really, I would say, the climatic point then was I remember having the cars out on display and everything was roped off and local police from local precincts were all standing behind the cars in smaller groups to make sure that nobody went past the ropes. And I had a woman who approached me and she says to me, Could I talk to you? Are you the restorer or the owner of this car? And it was regarding the 64 Corvette. And I explained to her who I was. And she proceeds to pull out pictures. And she was with, she was probably, I would say, sometime maybe 75 years old. She was an elderly woman, very in good shape. She had somebody with her that was accompanying her. And she pulls out all of these pictures from 1964. And she happened to be one of the models. And she had pictures of her standing next to the car. And she was enthralled because she remembered the car and she was modeling for the car at the Futurama show. Wow. And (laughs) she showing her pictures. Exactly. (laughs) What are the odds? She heard about the 50th anniversary and came out and she brought pictures over to the Queens museum where we were debuting all the cars. And we had a couple of dozen cars from the period that were there plus all the Barris stuff. So we had a great, great show and so well, But that to me was like reigniting history. You know, here's a woman that was a model that was probably in her early 20s. Here she is 50 years later coming to the event and she has her grandson with her, which looked like probably a 17, 18 year old gentleman. She's saying to her grandson, this is the car. Here's the picture. And she gave (laughs) us all of her contact info. But I mean, how cool is those odds, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool. Well, you talk about judging, and I know you're the, the chief judge at the uh, Cigar City Concours that's coming up here uh, this weekend, actually. And I want to ask you, because you touched on this with judging and all these different things that have happened. I've had this same conversation. I have a car that was a paint-to-sample Porsche. It was painted in a non-factory color at the Porsche factory, special ordered. You can do that with Porsches and some other Marks. And I've sat and argued with people that said, no way Porsche painted this color, Uh, because it's a six-stage metallic pearl color. It's very unique, very different. And I've said, well, <laughs> sorry, but they did. Uh Let me ask you this. As we we move into this upcoming show, and you're in charge of the judging, how do you deal with that at an event when cars are there, and there's no way any one person can know everything about every car, and somebody sits there and tells an owner, those aren't the right fasteners. And the owner says, I bought this car new. I've never changed them. What are you talking about? How do you deal with that as a judge?
1: Well, I got to tell you, what you first have to do is, you know, I have been down that road with very special cars and have had the same beatdown from judges that don't have an open mind. And what ultimately happens is, is that that kills the hobby because then people are restoring cars to a judge's guideline. And it's good to have the guidelines, but it's just that. It's examples, vast mass examples, that indicate what is common in the assembly process. It doesn't have the criteria to say, these are the anomalies. And they don't have the paperwork to do that. Unfortunately, in Corvettes, they don't have Marty reports for the 60 periods cars. What I find is I have been to Amelia Island. I have spoken with Bill there, the uh, director of the events. And I have also been out to Pebble Beach. And I also did a lot, a lot of work, both in front of the scenes and behind the scenes with Bonhams and with Malcolm Play who has passed but was the director of the Greenwich Concourse in Connecticut. And what I have found is that the Greenwich Concourse is probably was, at at a period, a little bit more user-friendly, let's say those times. When I was approached by Vic last year to come out and judge the event, it was his inaugural event. And Vic Piano, who is the CEO of the Cigar City Concourse, had his hands full with sponsors and organizational problems, as is with anything, you know, the first run out, you try to make the best impression. And that's all well and good in theory, but and in logic. But when it comes out to reality, it doesn't play out that way. So he learns from his mistakes. He got rid of the judge. Chairman that he had last year that didn't help him out at all. And I turn out, and over the winter, I said to him, Listen, you need to have, if you want to have a growing concourse, you can't be having a concourse event unless you're understanding the process of what people are presenting. In order for it to grow, The only common element that you can do is use conditional judging. You make it an invitational, you get the pictures, you review the cars, you speak to the owners, and then you make a selection process of what you want to have out. I know Vic probably received about 100 or 105 applications, and of that, we've probably sorted through and thinned out to about 50 or 60 right now only because you want to have an interesting feel and we've broken the judging down into you maintain a conditional concourse level for everything on the field. But we broke up into three levels. We have an exotic concourse level where all of your sport cars are put into that type of grouping, all of your Corvettes, your two-seater T-Birds, that's what you put in, uh, you know. Any European vehicles that are exotic, we put into that. Then we have a survivor class. The survivor concourse class. Considering that you also have a concor- a restored concourse group, we use a blanket conditional judging of all the events. Why? Because how are you going to get into arguing with somebody? If you have a judge that doesn't have the background for a particular car. And again, I don't want it to be confrontational judging. I want it to be an event, and I suggested that the best thing for us to do is to make it a two day event. The first day, you put out all the cars on the field, and we lay everything out, and the cars are there. And the next day is your field judging. And then by the end of the day, you can give out all of your awards. And you can supply them with the engraved certificates that'll come afterwards. But we've gotten to the point now where we're able to turn down cars because of the size of the event. As a two-day event, the venue at the Tampa Bay Downs is wonderful because we have a meet-and-greet evening on Saturday that Vic has provided. We don't charge to bring the cars in. And when the cars are judged, we judge them on conditional and we give them bonus points exactly for, let's say, presentation of factory paperwork or boards that they may have so that they can gain back points in case they drive these cars. So we break it down like a first place award covers anything between a hundred and ninety points. Second place goes between 89 and 80. Third place goes between 79 and 70. And then we give them back their judging sheet so they can see where they lost their points, what their strong points were on the vehicle, and it enhances them to want to return the following year. So you give them the opportunity to walk away content. If you're looking at this from a perspective that we want to make the concourse, the ultimate judging, we want the judging to be exactly that. We want to look at what you present. We want to look at it from the obvious perfect, uh, perspective. And we want to make sure that the judges are friendly with the owners, that they have the right ideas. If there's something there there's comments that they can write, or if they want to be able to say, listen, you see your car here, I happen to have some background on these cars, and these particular clamps or hoses are incorrect. There is a a matching car like yours that's of the same year that's in the survivor class that I looked at, that you can get a comparison or an idea and take some pictures. Listen, People may not change it. You don't know what their financial capabilities are, but they can take away the knowledge from seeing a field of vast cars that cover from 1903 all the way through 2015.
0: There you go. Yeah, fascinating. It's an incredible amount of work that goes into this. Well, Sergio, up next is the last lap. Before we put the pedal to the metal, let's say thank you to today's cars. Yeah, sponsors. When you want proven performance, there's one brand that's been around since 1938. That's Edelbrock, building the finest American-made performance products for the street and track edelbrock's products are designed and dyno proven to deliver maximum results edelbrock has thousands of made in the usa performance products for all makes and models from their new ads 2 carburetor and innovative pro flow 4 efi for your muscle car or truck to superchargers for your daily driver and more visit edelbrock.com to check out the latest products for your ride and when you're ready to check out enter cars yeah in the coupon code and get 10 percent off your order that at com. All right, Sergio, we are back, and I have a bit of an introspective question for you. If you woke up tomorrow and you were a vehicle, what would you be and want? I would say that
1: probably, if I could come back tomorrow, if my next lifespan was, I would come back as a car, I would probably want to be an amphicar. Okay. This way I could travel land and
0: sea. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Very creative answer. Uh, what's the best automotive advice you've ever received? Listen with two ears
1: and remember that the art of this, the uh, the secret of survival is the art of adjustment.
0: Yes, absolutely. How about a personal habit of yours you believe has contributed to your many successes over the years?
1: My habit is that I I'm a people's person and I love to be able to tell people. If you're interested in knowing what you need to do or what the guidelines are that can help you besides reading the manuals that are out there for judging levels cars, let me give you some of my secrets. And I have no problem revealing them.
0: There you go. Now, how about a resource? Is there one out there that is a go-to for you? Maybe this is a website. Maybe it's an app you use. Maybe it's a supplier. Maybe it's a person. Someone you could share.
1: I would probably say, you know, we all know that there's a lot of parts companies out there that are pretty much very generic, and you can go through catalogs online or books that are delivered to you. But one of the most interesting sites that I have come across recently that has been helpful in lead is one called BarnFinds.com. Okay, yeah. Goes, you know, they go through Craigslist, they go through eBay, they go through Hemmings, they go through all the different markets that are out there, and they like to accentuate vehicles that have been found in barns or that are very original, and go through that.
0: Very cool, barnfinds.com. Now, if I could arrange for you to sit down and have a drink or a meal with anyone in the automotive industry, living or deceased, who would it be?
1: I would probably say that the two most interesting people that I ever had the time to speak with, one was Carol Shelby in 2006 at Barrett Jackson. I ran into him in a restaurant, and we were able to sit down and talk a lot about what his feelings were when he was producing the Shelby Cobra. And it was a really long, but it was an interesting conversation. And the other one would probably be Larry Shinoda. Larry Shinoda was a designer who's also deceased. I never got a chance to sit down and speak with him. However, he was, and a lot of people don't know this, he was the designer of the 63 Stingray Coupe. He came up with that design. He worked with Harley Earl. He worked with Bill Mitchell, also GM. And he designed what became the C2 Corvette, the Stingray line. He also designed, and a lot of people don't know this either, he also designed the 67-68 Mustang Fastback. Cool. And he was a guy who, you know, did two cars that are like iconic in American automotive history.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. How about a book? Is there a book you've read you'd like to share with our listeners?
1: One of the most interesting books that I read was a book that was produced by Dick Gulstrand. Dick Gulstrand died about four years ago, and he was a very big-time racer for Chevrolet. He also was based out of California. He worked for Dana Chevrolet out there and was very, very impl- uh, instrumental in silently retaining the race program for GM through backdoor contacts. He also did a lot of work with Zora. His book was a very interesting read, considering everything that was done in GM, how it had to get done. And if people have the time to read it, look it up. It was Dick Gullstrand's autobiography.
0: Autobiography. There you go. I'll make sure I put a link to that on Sergio's show notes page. All right, Sergio, we're up to the checkered flag. And I have a bit of a question for you here. I'm going to buy you a very cool car today, any collector car you'd like. But there are some rules to my game, since I'm writing the check, that you have to abide by. One is you can't sell it to buy a bunch of other cars with. You have to drive it. No garage queens. But here's the kicker. It's the only one collector car you can have. Now, if you already have the car of your dreams, that's great. I don't have to buy you one. You just tell me what it is. (laughs) But maybe there's another one out there you'd like to have.
1: I would say if I could buy it and not get rid of it, I own a 66 450 horse coupe. I happen to love that body style. But if I could buy a Corvette that was manufactured, it would probably be the 1967 number nine car that was used at Le Mans. It was a 67 L88 that was painted in red, white and blue.
0: (laughs) Very nice. Do you know where that car is
1: these days? From what I heard last, there was a gentleman named Ed Mueller in Long Island that owned a car decades ago, probably about 20 years. I have heard that subsequently to that, the car was sold and there was a Japanese investor that bought it. I'm not sure if the car, if the rumors are true or not, but we believe that the car had gone overseas now.
0: Okay, all right. Well, I'll get to work on that for you. See if I can't bring it back over to this side of the shore. That would be wonderful. (laughs) I think it would be. Sergio, you've taken us on a great ride today. Really enjoyed talking with you. I think we could talk for hours. I want to thank you for sharing your journey. Before uh, we get to the last bit here, could you uh, give us one little parting piece of wisdom or guidance about cars, about judging perhaps, before uh, we drive off into the sunset?
1: I would say recognize the hobbyist effort is paramount to the vehicle
0: very well said what's the best way for people to learn more about you and your business vetworks incorporated i would say
1: well right now we are in transition from new york to florida and we're more here than than up there we have a few pieces of equipment we do a lot of updates to the website and especially once we'll be down here but vetworks.com is probably the best option if you want to have any questions or any, you know, you need to know any facts about a car or direction that we could set you in. We're more than happy to be that individual that can help you and extend the hand to.
0: There you go. I'll make sure I put a link to that on Sergio's show notes page. And of course, you can also go to cigarcityconcourt.com, check out the Concourt. If you're going to be in the Tampa Bay area, uh, check out this event, go to this event, walk up to Sergio and Don't bother him while he's judging, though. Wait till he's done. Uh, But say, hey, I heard you on Mars. Yeah. Sergio, thanks for being so generous today with your time, your expertise, and for sharing your enormous amount of experience and knowledge. Until you and I talk again, I'll see you at the Cigar City Concourse.
1: I look forward to that. And remember, if you learn it and you don't share the knowledge, it's worthless. Take care, Mark. Thank you.
0: Hey, Mark Green here from Cars Yeah. Did you know you can now see me on the Carsia yeah! TV show, it's a weekly visit to some of my past Carsia yeah! podcast guests, and I take you along for the ride. You go behind the garage door and into their lives, their businesses, and you get to see what makes them successful. With tens of millions of viewers, Carsia yeah! TV is making its mark. Carsia yeah! TV is available on MAV TV and Lucas Oil Racing TV. You'll find MAV TV on Direct TV, Fubo TV, FiOS by Verizon, or you can stream it through. Lucas Oil Racing Television online. And they said I only had a face for podcasting. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to carsyeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun.